You're listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. On this show, we will reach into the vaults with an interview recorded on Tuesday, March 6, 1966, with Dr. William Vroom, who was born on April 1, 1866. Dr. Vroom opened a medical office in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and created the first hospital in a small wing of the building. The late Dr. Richard William Lenk, who was a professor emeritus at Bergen Community College and a long-standing member of the American Historical Association and the Organization of American Historians, asked me to digitize this recording of the interview so that it could be shared. The date, the date is March 6th, a Sunday afternoon in Dr. Vroom's living room, present with Dr. Vroom, Dr. Donald Hull, Dr. Harlan Esseteer, and myself, Hugh Auchincloss, recording some early remembrances of medical days in Ridgewood uh, with Dr. Vroom, and Dr. Hull. Dr. Vroom, uh, in this year of 19... You want to start now? Yes. In 1966, uh, you tell me about what year it was you came to Ridgewood? When did you come here to practice? Uh, my doctor, I came... Doctor, I came in 1888 when I graduated from college. Well, you must have had some very interesting experiences in those days. Did you have any interesting confinements? Between two and three thousand, I don't know how much. Well, in all that number, over two thousand. Uh huh. You must have had some funny ones. Can you tell us about any? Well, I uh, was a young man, and there were old doctors here, and I fell into the work. How about that time that you uh, had a confinement down on Gotha Road and had to walk to Hawthorne? I remember you telling me about that some years ago. Which was it? The time that you had a confinement on Gotha Road and walked over to Hawthorne. Uh, Do you remember that time? Yes. I uh, was called out to make a call that night, but he brought a, a horse and sleigh. And he had a beautiful horse. And he took me to his home down in the Gothel Hill. I went down with him, and after I finished and returned the case, he's going to drive me home. I said, leave me off at this way station on the railroad, and I'll go to Patterson up on the area. He said, though that's very nice, so I got out at the station, and uh, the station master said, well, the last train down is gone. <laughs> so I had to walk through deep snow all the way to Hawthorne, about a mile. When I got to Hawthorne, I stood on the street, on the platform of the railroad, waiting for the midnight train. As it came rushing through, the storming, snow was blowing. They were going to push the train right through, but the uh, orders were that all passenger trains should stop at Hawthorne, and this man was just cutting through. When the engineer or the conductor saw me, he backed that train right up, and I picked me up. Well, you stopped them, didn't you? And brought me back <laughs> to Richard's safe. <laughs> In those days, uh, how many horses did you used to have? Did you uh, ever have four horses? Or yes, I had... A couple uh, of teams at one time? At the height you? of my work, I had four horses, and a pony and a pony cart for my wife and daughter. Then... Automobiles came in so. What kind did you have, Doctor? What sort of car were you driving? I had a steamer. A steam coconut. That's the car. Called you, a locomobile. Is that the car you used to have a license to cross the Hudson River? On the ferry, you have to have a license to cross the Hudson River? To get a license, I went to New York. And they said they had no licenses yet. They didn't have any automobiles in New York. <laughs> so uh, 
I uh, said, well, I'll, but the, the old man said, here, I'll give you an examination, and then I'll send you to Nye and get it. They have some license up there. So he brought out a slate and drew a picture, and he asked me all about the mechanism of my engine. And then I sent up to, no, to no, they sent up to Nyack, and they gave me a license from there, which I have hung upstairs, New and New York accepted it. <laughs> <laughs> What about the telephone, Doctor? Did you have a telephone in those days? You built your own well, telephone once, didn't you? Well, I had no telephone yet. There were no telephones. I uh, had a... Tell us about the telephone. Tell, you make up your question. Tell us, tell us about your telephone. The uh, as a as a business grew, I had no way of communicating from town to town. There was no telephone here, except one in a store in Ridgewood, up from connecting Patterson. So I said I'd build my own, and my preceptor had one up in New York State, debuilt and connected with the main line up to the Hudson Valley, and they allowed him to connect in with the main lines. So he sent me the bells, the parts were not, that were free yet, and I whittled out the, uh, the uh, part to listen, and a part and transmitter was a box about the si uh, a board about the size of uh, a cigar box. Behind that were points of carbon connected with the wires, and you spoke against this, and the uh, transmitter were. Uh, two long bar magnets in a much as a, of a transmitter is today, which I could hear. I t had the wires I bought in New York. Postal telegraph people they gave me a lot of uh, insulators, and I got a man and I bought a whole load of poles. I got a man to put them up, connected them with trees and the poles that were there for telegraph, uh, telegraph poles. And I connected my office with a grocery store in Wartendike. Wartendike contained then the uh, repair shops for the Susquehanna Railroad. Consequently, my clientele is quite large up there. I kept out there for two years, and uh, one day a call came through on it that they wanted to see me, they were meeting in the office, and there was a superintendent of telephone from Patterson. He said, Doctor, we're going to put the service in Ridgewood. We're going to take yours out. <coughs> And so they took it all out, they turned the wire out, turned them full coil to wire, they uh, burned up my instruments, and uh, that ended it. Didn't they have to buy you right away? How was that? Did they buy you right away? How did they take over your line, legally? Did they have to give you money to get your right-of-way? The right-of-way, I never asked. My uh, my office was down now, almost where the school, uh, school building is, the uh, 
office building on on College Street, College Street, and I had uh, I went from there through Franklin Avenue up to the railroad here, across the railroad and over the top of the wires. I put poles right here in Richard Village, and, <laughs> and over the wires, and up Godwin Avenue to uh, to uh, Wharton Dyke store. <laughs> What'd you have for a hospital then? A hospital was an afterthought. Well, we've got a good one now. What'd you have back in 1905 and so? Well, if you're talking about a hospital, I had practice for a few years. Got the telephone service in, and uh, I took in Dr. Craig as an assistant. Well, doctor, his family were friends of mine and patients. I got him through college, but he flunked in New York, at, and so they sent him down to University of Virginia. He finished up there. And he came back and I said, Doc, come right in with me and stay right here and don't cost you anything. I kept him two years. I never paid him anything. I bought a car for him, gave him the offices, and let him build a practice. Right with him, because he aided me. <clears throat> Until then, we became very busy. We had no hospitals. The Patterson Hospital, I remember when they built it, and the hospital in Hackensack, I was there when we initiated it. So uh, Dr. Craig and myself said, let's build our own hospital. So we got a carpenter and we built it right next to my home, down on Ridgewood, on Ridgewood Avenue. We fitted it up with sterilizers, rooms, cook, waitress, and five bedrooms. The uh, work done there, we had a beautiful operating room. Now, in operations, we didn't attempt ourselves attempt to do heavy work. The doctors from New York would come on and operate in our opera room for any heavy work. But when it came to appendicitis and those things, we took care of those ourselves. What did you do for anesthesia during that time? How's that? What did you do for anesthesia? Who, did, who gave the anesthesia? put the patients to sleep and so on for you. I don't think that. What did you do for anesthesia, doctor? Oh, Patterson. Patterson had a little hospital which we opened down on Main Street, in which the bathroom was the operating room, and they commenced to build a new hospital, and they, I got an anesthetic, an anesthetic, a man gave me anesthetic there. Dr. Vroom, this is Dr. Hull speaking. I was one of your first patients in that hospital. Had my tonsils out by you. Who was? I was. <laughs> <laughs> what was the date of that, Don? you remember? I think it was about 1905. Yeah. When did you start the hospital? About that time? I guess that's right. Dr. Vroom, we might say at this point, on April 1st of this coming April 1st, 1966, how old will you be? Now? Now? Yes. I'll be a hundred first of April. And that's only a few short days away, yeah, isn't it? A hundred years old first day of April. <laughs> yeah. uh, I think before you operated in your hospital, you used to operate a great deal on the kitchen table. Did you have any experiences on the kitchen table yeah. operating? Tell us about some of those. Well, I was going to recite a very interesting thing. One night, it was before we got our autos, that uh, two men drove up with a covered carriage. 
took me in and wanted me to go and see his sick wife. Well, I said, all right. But he drove around so far, I didn't know where he was going. At last, he landed up on Glen Avenue, I guess on, you told me uh, once. One of the streets near the railroad. What's now Glen Avenue, I think. Yes, Glen Avenue. And I went in and sat down beside the woman. And as I sat there, I could see into the other room. And the other room, they had a little portable blast furnace going, and which you're feeding silver spoons into it, and melting the, the pure silver and running it out into little molds and getting more silver. They were burglars that they'd been hunting for for a long time, never, never found them. And I recognized some of the things standing there in the room, in the houses I'd seen. For instance, a photograph, which is a very new thing in those days. There was one standing. And I saw, I know they stole it. Could you tell us a little bit about the early Ridgewood Medical Society? Where did it first begin? Where did uh, you meet? The Medical Society was a a small number of numbers. We met in the parlor of a hotel in Hackensack about where the prison stands now. Uh, we met Are you speaking of the County Medical Society? You're speaking of the County Medical uh, Society. County Medical Society. County Medical Society. And uh, St. John was a leading spirit there. And one thing I remember, very, he always had the waiter bring in a, a, a cocktail, Manhattan cocktails, for each of us. I never tasted Manhattan Say, that before. That was pretty good. <laughs> I never tasted one before. And, uh, but he always brought them in. And we had a couple of women doctors met also with us. That medical society kept growing. Dr. Curry of Englewood was secretary. Dr. Curry elected another man as secretary after a few years, and he's quite miffed about it because he wasn't keeping the records particularly. And he burned up all the records he had. Hmm. You were president of the society for two terms, weren't you? Yes, two terms. I what years were those? Do you recall? 1896 and 1906. <laughs> <laughs> well, we had a nice time there. We brought, as I grew up, I kept bringing in the new art, new medicines. There was insulin, there was antitoxin, and aspirin was new. I know that the druggist here came to me one day and he said, Doctor, how dangerous is aspirin? Well, I said, I don't think it's dangerous. Well, he said, I have a prescription for 15 grains. Do I dare fill it? <laughs> I said, there's no danger. To 15 grains of aspirin. <laughs> and, uh, uh... What what used to be your early conception of malaria? Was there much of that sort of a malaria? condition here, malaria in our... There was quite a good deal of malaria. I used to buy the cream by the carton. The queens were very light and weight, like snow. I put it in capsules. And I felt that our, uh, something should be done about that. I read a paper then before the State Medical Society on the cause of malaria being carried by uh, the uh, insects. Insects. And uh, I told him 
how that we were trying to ditch the country roundabout and keep the water from standing still, keep the water moving. Uh, after I had described our treatment of malaria and how it was caused by mosquitoes, a doctor in the bout of the audience got up and said I thought the same thing once. He said I set some slides down on the meadows. I thought maybe I'd catch them from a microscope. I went down there and I found them. Hmm. And I brought them in. I said, see here, look at them all in there. Hmm. And I sent them up to the laboratory to be examined. And the laboratory sent down word. Those are just sulfur crystals in the sulfur factory next door. And there are malaria parasites. <laughs> That's something. Uh, what about the, the story about uh, Jenny Boshida? Oh, that's right. I don't finish all that. And one day, I, oh, I, I was elected car of the county, northern part of the county, and I had my steam automobile, drove around for it, doing my work. A call came in for to a, a body found along the Passaic River, just the end of, uh, well, just at the, between New, Passaic uh, County and Ridgewood County. I went down, I looked at the body. It was a girl. She had a gash in her head, no blood, and, uh, very wet, clothing was wet. Took her inside of a mill right there, a room, and held held nurse panel of jury, held an inquest, but decided that I couldn't make a decision as to her death until we had a post mortem. But when I asked for aid from Hackensack her stenographer, they said, oh, I don't bother that. Throw it over into Passaic County, let them take care of it. <laughs> so I got a county physician there, and I was a coroner acting as county physician for Bergen. So uh, we took the body home, her home, and we made a post-mortem. I took out the stomach, put it in my medical bag, got it down to New York, and took the professor of chemistry of the New York University to analyze, which he did. Then I, the culprits were caught because Jenny, this girl, Jenny Bushida, had been enticed into the back parlor of a saloon, had been plied with uh, drink in which knockout drops of her. Well, make you think. knockout drops of coral. And uh, the drink was champagne, which she had never tasted before. They got a hot taxi outside. One of the men went out and got a taxi. And the other two men with the girl drove out and came up into Bergen County and to Ravine Avenue. She fainted away, apparently. They were a little startled. They took her to a brook and bathed her face with hot cold water, and that's where she got so wet. 
and uh, said, come to. They took it to New York, or to Patterson, or a, I could call up a doctor. The doctor came down and looked at her there in the carriage and said, why, she's dead. They turned around and went back and put the body alongside the river again. Uh, I, uh, you had, the men were arrested, the pulpits, and uh, a trial was held, and uh, I made my statement as a coroner, and the uh, chemist from the university made his statement that was chloral he found in her stomach. Well, the opposition said the gas in the head might have done that. <laughs> he put his hand in his pocket, he pulled out an envelope, he said, here are the crystals that I got out of the stomach. So they went to jail or the penitentiary for 30 years. And when they came out, they were gray-headed men. Gray-headed. When you were coroner, you also had a murder case where a, a man shot a girl or something. I remember you're telling me a story about a man shooting down the street here. Uh, you were coroner at that time. Do you recall that? Doing what? I seem to remember you telling me once about a, a murder by shooting that you took care of as a coroner. I came home one night, it was Sunday, and I had him turn the case on Godwin Avenue to tend to. I said to my man, you go home, put out your horse and have your supper, and I'll walk home when I'm through. When I got through, I walked home. And they told me that my man had been shot. Your chauffeur? My driver, yes. Your driver. And I said, why, what's the matter? I said, he's upstairs, he's up in the undertaker's establishment. Well, I went up there, and uh, I got the girl, a maid, to give me a history of what happened. While he, my man, went out to take her to church that evening, he sat in the kitchen before she came downstairs, and when the doorbell rang, she ran down, opened the door, and a man with a club put his foot in the door so she couldn't close it, walked in, and walked toward my driver who sat in the kitchen. My driver got up and ran out in the backyard, it was all snowing. He was followed and shot. We never found out who shot him. In making the postmortem, I found the slug that was an army slug from an army pistol. And that uh, we arrested a man right back of my house who had been in the army. <laughs> but we had no proof. We got no proof that he had done anything. That history died without solving. Hugh, do you suppose we have time to hear something about Dr. Broom's experiences when he went down to search out Pancho Villa down in Mexico? Is there time to tell us? I think it would be great. That would be too personal, wouldn't it? Well, I think that's interesting uh, history of your time. Make it short. Where, remember I, where you I went. I have and, uh, crossed it off because I thought it was too personal. Uh, well, how about uh, when you went with the hospital of nurses over to France? Yes. 
Tell us a little bit about that. You were a lieutenant colonel in the Army, weren't you? I had a friend, a Mr. Fuller, at Wyckoff, he was an international lawyer, who got a message from President Wilson to come and see him. President Wilson said, you speak Spanish and you understand the people. Now, I'm familiar has been raiding across the border, killing our cats, horses, mules, soldiers. And uh, I've been warned not to. He's been warned that he would become uh, a desperate, whatever you call it. And I, therefore, I want to send you down with Mr. Fuller and take this message to President, to, 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 to General Villa, telling him that we will invade Cuba, uh, we will invade the Mexico unless he desisted from raiding into our country. He still raided into the country so that we had to go down. We started on the train here at Hackett, at Ridgewood. I had a bag with my things standing by me, a train full of people. When I got out of Jersey City, my bag was gone. <laughs> and uh, I had everything in it, traveling down there. I telegraphed all along the line and then I woke up a man in Passaic, he was asleep. He says, yes, there's a bag standing out in front on the platform. Well, I said, that is my bag. Now you send that to the Willard Hotel in Washington, because I'll be there tomorrow. Send it by express. He did. Mr. Fuller and I went on to the night train from New York. We got to Willard, got in the hospital, got to bed, and uh, we were told that in, uh, we would be met by a man down at the border who would direct us across the border into Mexico. In the morning, the bellboys, one of the bellboys said, I know where you can get a dress suitcase. Said, there's some Hebrews up here, got stores open all day Sunday. Went up and they bought me an ordinary suitcase. And I went to the drugstore and bought a razor and a lot of things like that. We started out. But before we left Washington, the bag came in, express company. I used that bag to put in the code, the United States code, so that I could communicate back to Washington. Brian, Secretary of State, then fixed us up, gave us a $500 note bill. <laughs> Nobody would change it. <laughs> we had to get the express company, the hotel, and the railroad to divvy up around and break it so we could get paid for our ticket. However, we got down to El Paso, and at El Paso, we met, went to a hotel. And uh, that has failed. We couldn't get room. Couldn't get a bed. Well, I said, we told him why we were there. And he said, all right, I'll tell you what I'll do. There's a man here, a steady patron, who is away for a couple of days, will give you his empty bed. And so we got through El Paso, crossed the bridge, had got into finding a village in the Santa Madre Mountains. 
Did you find Veer? Did, did you find him? Oh, I'm all right. Did you find Veer? We had no one knew where he was. So we asked at El Paso and then crossed the line. Wanted engine in a car. Well, they said you may have them, but the railroad is half broken up. I'll have to send a man or two with you to put the rails in place to get your car train through. So I had an engineer, an engine, and a fireman, a couple of men, and a soldier as a guard. And we started down, and where we came to a broken rails, they had to put the rails in place for the trains to go through. Finally, by night, I reached Chihuahua. That's the middle, that's the capital of that state. We had no place to go. Hotels were all closed, the house, town was shut up. But we found a little old hotel with uh, waiters that were ordinary people like uh, Chinese, roaches were four inches long. <laughs> Boy. <laughs> and I remember the next morning, breakfast, we had a soft boiled eggs. You had to keep your hand over the glass to keep those roaches from getting in. They were there, ready to get in. Before long, we found a knock, had a knock at the door and some soldiers came in and they had a big packet car and said, we know that you're here and we want to take you to a better place. They said, we'll take you to the mayor's home. He has a nice home in a park. Uh, Mr. Fuller said, all right, we'll go. And so we drove in and there we got our dinner, the servants were there, and the family were away in the mountains, and uh, we uh, thought we'd take a little walk. We went down to the railroad station, but they knew nothing where Villa was. Well, we said then, we'd like to have our car and our engine and go further down. They said with fires taken out of that engine, take a long time to steam her up again. Huh. After we got ready, it was getting quite dark. They hitched our car to an immigrant train, so we're taking refugees south. And we had a message from Villa, telegram, saying, I'll meet you at Santa Rosalia. That's down in Mexico. At, at midnight, well, he wasn't there. They took us to a hotel. We stayed all night, gave us good attention. And in the morning, say, Villa came in last night, and he's at his headquarters next door, and he will be ready to meet you at 11 o'clock. So we were arranged to meet him at a proper hour, and he walked in with his staff, and uh, I sat down below, and I sat with a doctor who was an Austrian. He spoke English, and he was Villa's personal doctor. He said the doctor is he said the doctor's in awful pain. He's got the stone in the bladder. And he said, I don't know what to do for him. I've done everything I can get. Well, I said the other thing I can suggest now, you've got a nice hospital train with everything in it. Well, he said he won't go there because they'll catch him. He keeps away from the trains or anything. Well, I said Give him a one to four thousand solution of nitrous silver and wash the bladder out regularly. Keep it disinfected the best you can. Yeah. 
I guess Villa was one of your most distinguished patients then, wasn't he? Yes, then we hit surgery. Villa, we, we couldn't make any agreement with Villa just then. Villa said he'd have to see his other generals. And we took hitched our car onto a train, took us back to the capital and uh, Chihuahua. And there, Mr. Fuller met all the other generals in Villa. And they could not come to any understanding. Villa wanted to be a general. I called him general. He stepped raiding, continued raiding across the border yet. And when Pershing sent our army in, or Pershing took our army in, they followed Villa as far as they go, but the army of Mexico just opened up and let him pass through the back. Hmm. And what could you do? Nothing in that case. Dr. Uh, Hugh Auchincloss and Harlan Esseter want you to tell us a story that you told us at the Medical Society dinner about the team that you hired for $12 and went out on a blinding snowstorm to see a girl sick. $12? Do you remember? Uh, and when you got there, the father leaned out of the window. Oh, yes, that was a cold night. <laughs> the uh, ground was frozen, and my my man and I got a horse. You know, in those days, I kept a horse standing harnessed on the carriage floor, ready to go to Benner's call. I had a good. I'd have two or three maternity cases waiting. And with Dr. Hull, Dr. Craig Lewis, we had to have get off quickly. However, we got up about three to four miles up in the country. The man had sent a messenger, and uh, we got to the house, but it's dark. There's not a sight to be seen. I knocked on the door, finding the window upstairs opened. The man said, who's there? I said, well, Doc, Doc's here. I reached him. Oh, he said, Doc, he said, you don't have to come in. The child just had a fit and is quite well. Don't come <laughs> <Dear>. in. <laughs> that makes me think of another thing. When a little girl, Dr. Mills, was born, I was called out that night by her father. Horse and sleigh came, for I had telephone. And I, I uh, started out to go. And as I passed the hotel in Midland Park, he'd gone in to get a drink. I guess he needed it. <laughs> we went on. We got into a snowbank. The roads were chuck full of snow. We came out, backed out, and I said we'd go through the back street and try to get there. Hmm. Uh, we got in there, the horses got up at their neck. We had to harness the horse and get that out, pull the sleigh out. We came back to the original place where the men were digging the thing and digging the snow out. Finally I got there. I had to stay all night. So I sent my man home. I said, you go home to the fields where the snow had been blown off. 
I'll stay all night and come back by the railroad. And the baby was born toward morning, so I had a whole night job of it. It had numerous cases happened like that. Hmm. Well, doctor, I, I think... I you suppose that people often paid you in all kinds of goods and food and everything. What was that like? Were you paid sometimes uh, by the barter method? Uh, you suggest that this, you were paid for these deliveries in... Uh, $10. Ten dollars and took care of the case nine days afterward. Be sure they're all right. <laughs> Did you ever get stood up for your fee? <laughs> Doctor, you've been very good to us to talk to us so long. I think you're getting a little tired, possibly. And uh, I want to just say that the Ridge Medical Society is going to appreciate very much your telling us these anecdotes. Well. And we wish you a happy birthday on the 1st of April when it rolls around in a few days. Another man Thank called you. me up like that. And I just started pretty badly. I said, well, now you just send your team down, and I'll go right up and take care of you. Just three, four miles away. I said, I wouldn't turn my horses out in the storm. I had my auto in those days. Auto wouldn't go through the snow. I went up, the, and I had only one horse left. I'd sold the others. And I went up to the livery stable and got a team of horses. And I started out. Tell us how they used to warm the bits. Yes. The bits for the horses. How did you warm yeah. those? Well, I'll tell them about that. They, uh, we got up into a snowbank. And uh, it took us, we had to dig us out. We had to get men to shove us out again so we'd get around now. And I got to the house and he gave me three dollars. I came home and told, I paid twelve dollars for the team. It's <laughs> 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 cold weather. Our horses, I always had to keep the bits warm by breathing on them. I and my man who kept breathing on the bits till they were a little warm so they wouldn't take the skin off the teeth, off the tongue. After a while, I put heat in my stable, a big pot belly stove, so that the horses and everything else were warm. I had at that time a German driver. He was very built a greenhouse on the back of the barn and put cow manure, horse manure in the bottom of it and used the horse manure fermentation for heat. Uh, so many things like that happened that it was a great, uh, it was really a pleasure to practice medicine even it was hard. You made it sound very interesting to us. I, uh, I got very much attached to horses. I had a team of horses. They were always known at night, going past people's houses. They always tell them, I just went past the house by the way they trotted. Mm -hmm. They were, and, uh, the life, after Dr. Craig came with me, we became quite surgical. We had our ambulance running. We had men, people coming in. We had our hospital filled mostly, our time. And uh, we got, so the doctor got pretty well up in the surgery. And, uh, we thought nothing of opening an abdomen, thought nothing of a mastoid. But in the earlier days, earlier, there was a doctor up in Sussex County, he used to come down and practice, he was quite clever. 
He had taken some surgical work in New York, and he got me to be an assistant whenever he made do an operation. We'd go to the houses and do mastoids, tonsillectomies, hair lip, and all that sort of thing. Well, who would think of doing that today in the kitchen? <clears throat> and we got good results. I bet you did. I wonder if there's time to tell a funny story about Dr. Vroom. Oh, I think that'll be great. Dr. Vroom, I want to tell him about the time that uh, the Medical Society went over to Pierpont on the Hudson and had a pretty wild time at a beer parlor over there, as we generally did in different places. I might interject here that Dr. Vroom was known among the physicians of Ridgewood as being the most cultured and politest and uh, most genteel of the doctors that uh, practiced in our community. And this is an example of his gentility, because when they got home, doctor got out of Dr. Willard's car, and he stood uh, in near the rear of the car, rather close to it, and was talking to the doctors, and uh, they thought they'd better see that he got into the house all right, safe and sound, so they said, well, goodbye, doctor. Uh, don't you think you better go in? And, uh, well, doctor kept on talking, but the Harry Willard turned around and said, doctor, I think you better go in now. And Dr. Vroom, in a very genteel manner, said, uh, I'd be very glad to, Harry, if you'll please uh, move the car a little. The wheel is on my foot. <laughs> well, you must remember, in the early days, practice was very individual. There were no specialists. We had consultants. And, you know, it was nothing for us to think We'd often call a consultant from New York, from the colleges, and then come out here as a consultant for us. You don't hear that today, but those professors come out here. And uh, that took care of us as a specialist. I remember, I remember examining draft. I remember examining draft board men with you about 1942. Yeah, that's what you And uh, you recognized one of these men by his name, and you said, oh, I think I delivered your father. <laughs> and the young fellow says, no, that wasn't my father, that was my grandfather. Huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you speak of medical practice. Today, I had a patient, my last patient practically, was one of these patients came to me and said she'd been to psychologists, she could never get any help. I sat down, I sat on the couch beside me, I went over her history. And I said, look here, you're not insane. No, I don't think I am. But I said, I want you to go over to Bergen Pine and be analyzed there and see what would be best to do for you. Well, it's something different to getting there, but her father got her over. They shipped her right straight to Mars Plains. <laughs> well, she was there a year, and they uh, said, well, now look here, you've been a pretty good girl. If you want a little vacation, why don't you go home a little while? Well, she said, I'd like to. So they sent her home. And she came to see me and told me all about it. Well, I said, go out in my garden with me, plant my seeds and do my transplanting with me, and do something. You've never done a stroke of work in your life before. Yes. Well, she came down the next day. She had a pair of overalls on. All fixed for it. I put her to work that day. We worked in the garden 
I thought she was quite some, did her some good. She acted better. Did the next day again. I gave her work for three or four days. I telephoned Mars Plains, telephoned the doctor, what I had done and how she was acting. He said, keep her right there and go ahead. I did. This year, she married. Now, before she married, I said, I don't know what's going to happen after you marry. But she says, I don't either. I don't know myself. Well, I said, it's a question. But she married. I went to a wedding. She had a baby a few months ago. She brought here to show me. She's all in fine shape. I don't see anything wrong with her. She's got her own home. She's running it. Her husband has business in New York. They come to see me occasionally. Little baby. <laughs> we have more general practitioners like you, doctor. We don't need about half the psychiatrists. Along with everything else, you're quite a psychiatrist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to illustrate how we had to do all these different things in our old age. We couldn't shift them off to a psychiatrist or to a surgeon. If it's a surgical job, we had to do it ourselves. The uh, hospitals were just beginning to grow up, and uh, the beautiful rest homes now, which I'm going to down to the rest home. Just for a little while only. I got in there. Just till Alma comes back from the hospital only. Is Dr. Wilson there? Who that be? I don't know. I have a room with him. And uh, Mrs. Rumba's got to go to the hospital to have cataract operation. And uh, we close up here. That's all we can do. We've tried every way. Well, it won't be for long, and we'll look to see you perhaps at the next meeting. At the time of your birthday, we'd love to have you come. Is that right, Oscar? Yeah, Very good. yeah I just I hope so. skip the birthday. Well, just perhaps you just there's come for a little for a few years minutes. And there's <laughs> another hundred years coming yet. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I think we ought to do something about a hundred years. That only comes once in a life. Well, we had, we had it in mind. <laughs> you know, I've, I've known the sure. doctor's father so well, medical society. Can't you tell us something funny about Harlan's father? <laughs> Can't you tell something funny about Harlan's father? You and he were great friends. I don't know much about him, no. <laughs> That's good. Yes, you well, do. I mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned, see, I was at a wedding of some kind. He's pouring champagne, I remember that. <laughs> well, you remember, in those days, we were allowed to do a great many things. I could go to New York and have the run of the hospital. I could see any of the big doctors. It's all free of the all chains today. I guess you got pregnant enough on that. Yeah. Dr. Vroom, if you are going to go into practice again starting today, for example, what of the different specialties do you think you might choose to work in? Uh, oh, I think I'd probably take children's diseases. I was pretty well up in that at one time. My formulas were known all over the country that I had I got letters from doctors all over the country about my, my formulas. They're no good now. And, uh... Praise me, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a great pleasure to have Dr. Craig come in, or Dr. Smith before, Dr. Craig, and now, now. And I've always had 
someone with me. Yeah. It's nice to talk medicine as well as just thinking. Uh, in those days, all our electrical machines we had to make. I made my cauteries. I made uh, all my electrical work. I made myself. I put it right in my office. I accumulated all our instruments because in those days a surgeon owned his old instruments. Today the hospital owns. You've been listening to Mr. Radio, and I'm your host, Marshall. This program was written and produced by Marshall. Our theme music was played by Ululation. Mr. Radio is available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. And don't forget to tune in for another episode of Mr. Radio. Mr. Radio.